0: Oh Lord Jesus, this was not the evening we had planned, and yet it was the evening that you had planned for us, even from the foundations of the earth. Oh Lord Jesus, we need your help to hear what your word has to say to each and every one of us. Would you help us? Would you help us to receive the word implanted in our hearts for it to take root and to bear a, bring forth a harvest of righteousness within each of us we ask you to help us to not be those that are so distracted by the trappings of this world that we become spiritually bankrupt oh lord jesus help us to be devoted and joyful in our worship of you in all things help us to even do that tonight in this worship service we pray In your mighty name, amen. Back in 1986, a movie came out called The Money Pit, starred by Tom Hanks. It's a fairly compelling story. A couple finds a house on the market that is too good to be true. It's a million-dollar house that costs just a fraction of that, and they have an opportunity of the lifetime to buy low, do a little fixing up, and end up with an incredible Palace to call their home. Well, all does not go well with that plan. They purchase the home and they move in, and then no sooner do they do than the problems begin. The pipes are full of gunk. The wiring in the the walls catches fire. The whole front door frame comes off, and it's just one repair after another. And on top of it all, they have a a set of contractors that are up to no good that steal their money and make the whole thing just a disaster. In exasperation, at one point, Tom Hanks declares, this house is a money pit. That's a comedic take on the difficulties of home ownership. If you own a home or have taken care of a home, you certainly understand the exaggerated troubles that Tom Hanks and his wife in that movie uh, dealt with. It, it turns out houses are a lot of work. It seems like a never-ending punch list of things that need to be done. There's always improvements, always renovations, always things to keep you up at night if you are in charge of the upkeep of a house. One of the dangers that comes with home ownership is taking on too much responsibility, uh, outspending your finances or your ability to upkeep, and so becoming what they call house poor. House poor is someone that owns a, a mighty nice home, but they live a not so nice life because maybe the mortgage payment is too high or the repairs cost too much or it just takes so much of their time that their house ends up ruining their life. Owning a house is a big responsibility. There are pitfalls to it, but it turns out that there's an analogy to be made spiritually. Being house poor isn't just a a financial issue. It's possible to be house poor spiritually. So is the lesson from 1 Kings 7, 1 through 12, as we see Solomon building a house fit for a king. But it turns out even though Solomon could afford it financially, he couldn't do so spiritually. Turns out even a king can be spiritually house poor. And as we examine the house that Solomon builds, we'll uh, hear a warning for ourselves of the importance of keeping our devotion to God above all else. The passage is much shorter this week. If you were with us as we studied through chapter 6, there were lots and lots of details we went through. As Solomon built the temple for the Lord, We, we saw both the exterior of that temple and then the interior of it, all of its splendor and glittering gold and the glory of the house that would be fit for God to dwell in. Well, now in these 12 verses, we turn our attention to the house Solomon builds for himself and for his government. Let's learn from his example of how easy it is to be spiritually house poor. The passage is not all that difficult to see how it breaks down. In verses 1 through 8, we see the house that Solomon builds of cedar, the, the house for both himself and for the government, and then in verses 9 through 12, we see the costly courtyard around it all. So 1 through 8, the house, and then 9 through 12, the courtyard. Now we're told at the very beginning in verse 1 that this is to be, you would expect this to be a very ambitious, even difficult building project. In verse 1, Solomon was building his own house 13 years. It took him 13 years to complete this project, which tips us off that it must have been pretty ambitious. Well, why so? Well, you see in verses 2 through 7, some of the reasons why in the details of the government buildings. Uh, There's a, a complex of five buildings that are described. Maybe there were more of them, but at least five identifiable buildings are here. The first three are all to be used by Solomon and his officials for the work of ruling over the nation. The first building is the most impressive. It's called the House of the Forest of Lebanon. It's in verses 2 through 5. I say it's impressive for several reasons. Uh, First, it's size. It's almost twice as big as the temple that we just spent all of chapter 6 on. It's a a big building, big enough for Solomon and all of his royal officials to gather in to have large assemblies when it was needed for powerful people to make powerful, big decisions. Uh, Second, it's impressive because of what it's made out of. Uh, You might say Solomon used a dab of cedar on the temple of God. Well, now he, un- he unleashes a deluge of cedar on this government building. There's cedar paneling from floor to ceiling. It's a big building, remind you. But even more than that, there are 45 giant cedar pillars holding up the floor above their heads of the roof. You can see why they called it the House of the Forest of Lebanon. Lebanon. It was like an indoor forest of the most expensive lumber money could buy. Now, a house richly adorned like this would be fitting for what we find out later in uh, Solomon's story, would turn into his treasury. He would bring all the gold and treasures that had been laid up for the temple, and he would put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. First building is a very, very large, very impressive building. Uh, Second, in verse 6, we see the hall of pillars we don't know much about this one it we know it has a cool name and there's a bunch of pillars and there's a porch and that's pretty much it uh, some commentators think it was a entrance way to the whole complex of buildings if they were all connected to each other this would be the very regal looking way in that's possible but the text doesn't really tell us all we know is it's worth noting and it sounds very impressive More importantly is the third building described in verse 7. The hall of the throne. We're told that it is also paneled with cedar. You could say it's richly adorned with the best stuff money can buy from floor to ceiling. But even more important than the materials to make the place is what happened inside that place. It was also called the hall of of justice or judgment. This is the place where Solomon as king would pronounce judgment over his subjects in Israel. Remember back then they didn't have a supreme court of the land. It was up to the king to make those hard sort of calls. And remember Solomon himself had been granted special wisdom from God to be able to judge justly as king. This is the room where all that happened. Can you imagine it? Seeing Solomon in all his splendor, seated on a golden throne, bringing people before him in court to hear the wise words of judgment, God's king on his throne, giving his people justice. It's enough to make your heart yearn to be a fly on the wall. A very, very important building, to say the least. Now, all three of these buildings together, paint us a bit of a picture. It is enough space with the right sort of honor for a government as big and as vigorous as the one described as Solomon created. A place for him to rule over the nation and to do so with honor. A king needs a palace. And so far, the government wing of the palace is one to remember. We'll also see, though, it's not just government buildings that Solomon takes the time to build. He also builds personal living quarters. We see it just in one verse. In verse 8, there are two different sets of building quarters, his own and that for his wife. We'll read verse 8. His own house where he was to dwell in the outer court back of the hall was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken In marriage it seems as if there was some sort of large courtyard that was connected to the uh, maybe a complex of buildings that would have been for these living quarters we're not told much about them except they were had the like workmanship I take that to mean that they were built with the best stuff money could buy cedar very likely Solomon had a place for himself every king needs a room a place to have some peace. But then we have that other matter. We're told he also builds one for his wife, Pharaoh's daughter. I think as we hear that, if we've been paying attention to this whole book so far, we're supposed to grimace a little bit. It reminds us back to that issue back in chapter 3 where Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh in Egypt, and he took one of Pharaoh's daughters, uh, one of, uh, Pharaoh's daughters, as his wife, as a, a way of getting some political power, and how that was a questionable, at best, sort of a decision. I think the narrator is here reminding us that this problem has not just gone away, and as the story will progress, in fact, we will see. That what was present in seed form back in chapter 3 is indeed starting to sprout now. And one day, when it comes to full bloom, it will be Solomon's undoing. His pursuit of sex, money, and power will one day lead to the downfall of even the golden age of Solomon's kingdom. But not for today. Today, it is just a, a brief mention a bit of foreshadowing of what's to come. Well, if those buildings aren't enough to show us the cost of all of this, the courtyard drives that point, point home very uh, very firmly. In verses nine through 12, we see that describe the area around the buildings and even the foundations of the buildings. And if we were to describe it in any way, it is costly. It it was built with special costly stones. Four times they are called costly stones. That's a a technical term referring to very expensive, very carefully uh, quarried stones that would be used for only the finest type of construction. We're told that these stones were sawed and prepared before they were brought to the building site, uh, most scholars think that think that means that these are limestone. Uh, it turns out limestone, when it's quarried it, before it is exposed to outside air, it's very soft. You can actually do quite a bit of smoothing and sawing and things. But as soon as you bring it above ground, it hardens. Uh, and that meant if you had enough money and enough men with the right skills, you could do things with stone and have them pre-prepared and then brought to the building site and have a level of precision and beauty that would be unmatched by others that didn't have that same level of resources. Turns out Solomon cares not just about the walls around him and the roof over him. He cares about the very floor he walks on. You can rightly say this place is made with money. Now that's all we are told about solomon's building a project for his own house 12 verses obviously it's a palace fit for a king but so what what are we to take for this is this just a, a digression uh did the section on the temple just go too long and the author felt like he needed to take a break to talk about something else well no i don't think so I think there are applications that we are intended to draw from this, two of them specifically, that have everything to say to Christians living today, 3,000 years roughly, since that house was completed. The first lesson is this We are to beware of being spiritually house poor. We are to beware of being spiritually house poor. We're to beware of being so invested in the things of this world that we go spiritually bankrupt. I think that author is very intentionally showing us Solomon's vices of the heart that are becoming more obvious in this building project. Uh, I'll give you two bits of, uh, of evidence for this. The first is the contrast he makes but with the, how long it takes to build the temple Versus how long it takes to build his house. If you go back just one verse, chapter 6, verse 38. This is the end portion of the building of the last section of the building of the temple. And it says this, verse 38. And in the 11th year, in the month of bull, which is the 8th month, the house was finished in all its parts according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. Seven years to build, build the, the temple. And then without missing a beat with no verse divisions in the original, the next very next words, chapter seven, verse one, Solomon was building his own house 13 years and he finished his entire house. I don't think it, there's any mistake what the author is doing there. He tells us, yes, it took seven years to build God's house, but it took almost double that, 13 years, for Solomon to build his own house. Well, certainly there's a lesson to be drawn there by that comparison. There may be reasons why construction was delayed or many other reasons, but the author doesn't tell us any of that. Just on raw facts, Solomon put almost twice as much time into his house than he put into God's house. Uh, A second line of evidence would be the volume of valuable lumber that Solomon put into his house. I mean, if, if he put a little bit into the temple, he put a lot into his house. And that tells us something, because even though Solomon could afford it financially, I think the point is that he couldn't afford it spiritually. He doesn't come right out and say that. Yet there are warnings against Israelites' kings acquiring for themselves great wealth, things like gold and silver, and yes, even expensive lumber. I think a parallel passage later in Jeremiah 22:14 14 through 15, makes this very point. Jeremiah 22, verse 14, Who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Then verse 15 is the clincher. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? One commentator said this of Solomon and his housing project. He said, what we see in this passage is not so much Solomon's wisdom, as his wealth he learned from the world brothers and sisters isn't there a lesson for each of us living today even though we are not the king of Israel even though we don't have access to the type of finances that Solomon did don't we have to ask the question are our possessions actually holding us back in our devotion to God Oh, it's not sinful to have a house or to build one. It's not sinful to have a bank account with money in it. And yet it is spiritually dangerous to do so without any sort of consideration or warning. Didn't Jesus tell us that where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also? Didn't he warn us against storing up treasures in this world so that we could store up treasures in heaven? None of us are a king of Israel, and yet so many of us, when we think of our homes, we think of them as our castles, don't we? I think houses are actually one of the easiest ways to see how our hearts can go astray at this very principle. I mean, houses aren't something that are easy to avoid. One way or the other, we all have to live somewhere. Whether you own or rent, you got to have somewhere to live. But man, are they expensive. Especially if you are responsible for upkeeping a home, if you own a home. Uh, man, you might want to invest in some stock in Home Depot with as much as you're going to be pouring into it. And think of all the time. All the projects that take two or three times as long as you think they're going to take. Yeah, I learned that lesson the hard way this week with something pretty, uh, pretty simple. It turned out to be not so simple once I tried to fix it. And then there's that whole issue of the comparison trap. You walk down the street, you see your neighbor's lawn, and it has a, a few less dandelions than yours does. Or maybe it has a few more dandelions, and you think you're better off than he is. We fall into the trap of keeping up with the Joneses feeling like we've got to renovate and make additions and make improvements without end, it's never enough. Houses can even serve as a way to isolate us. We hole up in our houses, not just during COVID. We find ways to turn them into fortresses, not palaces with open gates to our neighbors and to our fellow church members. Yeah, it turns out your house can be a great spiritual danger to your heart. turns out the problem isn't bricks or mortars. The problem is each and every one of us. So what should you do about it? Well, let me give you two ways to fight against becoming spiritually house poor by the physical house you live in. The first would be to practice contentment. Practice contentment. Realize that you don't live where you live by accident. God gave you the space in which you inhabit. It is a good gift from God to you to enjoy for his purposes. And that means you should have thankfulness about it. And it also means you should be satisfied with it. Oh, certainly, that means you need to be a steward of it, and that will involve you keeping it up, figuring out what repairs need to be made. Uh, you got to take good care of the things God entrusts you with. But at the end of the day, I hope your heart is content with wherever God has given you to live. I think our contentment needs to be matched with our commitment, our commitment to use the assets of the place we live For the purposes of the King we serve, houses are a great place to practice hospitality. Uh, I know during COVID that's harder to do, but it's a a good thing to be thinking about. How am I using the place I live to reach my neighbors, to get to know my fellow church members, to be a blessing to missionaries when they come through town? Uh, There was one couple that I love the way they did this, they bought a house. And then they asked me to come and walk through that house and to pray with them that the the Lord would help them to use this house in a way that glorified him. I think that's how all of us should desire to think of our homes. Something that we receive from God as a gift and that we turn around and that we use for God to glorify him in whatever way he asks We don't want to be spiritually house poor, and that means being content, and that means committing ourselves to using what God has given us with joy for his purpose. Second line of application, it's to prioritize God over government. Prioritize God over government. There's a bit of intentional editorializing that's going on in this passage that de-emphasizes the government aspect of Solomon's buildings and emphasizes the worship element of Solomon's buildings. The author devotes only 12 verses to a project that went on for 13 years. Or if you measure it another way, 12 verses on the government houses and Solomon's own house, and 73 verses on his building of the temple. Now, we can't say that government was unimportant. We think about the reasons why the golden age of Solomon's reign were so good. You come back to a lot of governmental matters. God gave him special wisdom to be a great king. And Israel prospered as a result. Now government was not unimportant. The point is that government is not the most important. What's most important is worship of God and devotion to God. To him. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like what Christians are called to also. For us to be devoted to God and even joyful in our worship of God and to prioritize those things, even over those important matters like how we steward our influence on government. It's been rightly said that we live in an era where politics is the new religion everything's political from the brands we consume from to the tv shows we watch and the movies the the what we post on social media it seems like politics is everywhere you look and and people now follow their various political causes with a religious type zeal Now, living in a world that has made politics into the new religion, it's no surprise that we Christians have a battlefield in our own hearts to keep politics and even the concerns, the right concerns of influencing government where it's intended to be, behind in line of our worship of God and our devotion to him. Maybe you're not sure if you are following into a worldly pattern of thinking of how you influence government or engage in politics as a Christian. Well, here's some questions you can ask yourself. Are you paying more attention to talking heads on TV than to the head of the church, your Lord Jesus Christ? Do you spend more time on political programming Or even promoting a political agenda than you do to promoting the gospel of Jesus. When you think of the future, are your thoughts shaped more by the promises that politicians make, whether you believe them or not? Or more by the promises that God makes in his word? Or maybe you could ask it a completely different way. If you were to make an honest assessment of your time, of your talent, of your treasure. What is getting more of you? A political party or a political cause or the local church that is God's outpost, his embassy to this world where you are called to be a member? Now, undoubtedly, it requires great balance to know how to live as a good, as a Christian in the day and age we do, to be a good steward of the fact that if you are a citizen of the United States and you, you have the ability to vote, then you have the ability to influence the governing authorities and even to shape culture. That's a, a high calling. and requires a lot of wisdom. And uh, the fact that we are in election year is not lost on me. We're going to have to think about some of those things together as a church over the months ahead. Yet I hope With all of that said, that we learn the lesson from this very text. As important as the hall of government is, our devotion to God is much, much more important. Now, if you're watching this stream this evening and you're not a Christian, maybe you think that Evangelical Christianity is basically just a voting block within the community in which you live. You think that Christians are are basically a religion that is uh, essentially just a group of people trying to get political power like so many other groups in our country vying for that same power. Now, I understand how you could come to that conclusion. Unfortunately, many Christians, and I, I count myself guilty of this at different times, have placed too much emphasis on trying to influence government in ways we think for for the good of all of us. And in such a way, we we actually have given the impression that at our most basic, we are a political political block of votes. But realize the message of the Bible is far different from that. Uh, Christians are people that serve a man that we think is king over the entire world. And when this king came to this earth, he didn't do so to try and grab the reins of political power. In fact, there were people that tried to take him and make him an earthly king, and he flat out refused them. At one point near the end of his life, he was being questioned, asked if he was trying to start a revolution, and he said this to someone in authority. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus wasn't a man that came to be a politician and gather a base of voters to uh, overturn a social system. No, he was a man on a mission sent from heaven itself. He was the very son of God come to rescue sinners from the wrath of God. We Christians believe that the The biggest problem this world faces isn't all the injustice that happens, although that's awful. It's not the bad politicians that get in power, although that's bad too. No, the real problem is that we have offended the God that made us by breaking his law. And that all of us deserve the very judgment of that God. We understand Jesus to be the solution to that, our sin problem. That he gave his life up. He gave up all of his rights and powers so that he could be a sacrifice fitting to cover our sins. We believe we are right with God because Jesus experienced the punishment we deserved. And after he did that, he promised us, just as he came back to life three days after he died, he promised us that he could give us new life now and forever. Now, if you don't know what it means to have a sort of trust in Jesus as your Savior, we would love to help you to understand what the Bible says about how you can know you are forgiven through Jesus Christ. Now, for all of us that are Christians, this evening I hope we would remember one of the things Jesus said before he left his disciples on this earth. And it's a a reason we should never get over for why we shouldn't put so much time and attention into our earthly houses or even those important halls of government. Jesus said, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If I go prepare a place for you, surely I will come and bring you to me so that where I am, you can be Also, what is our hope in this world? It's not that our home will be a castle. It's not that we'll find security in our possessions or our trinkets. It's not that we'll get the right people in office that will protect us and bring prosperity. No, our hope in this world is that we follow King Jesus. And he has a home waiting for all of us a place we will live with him forever. I love that song, Be Thou My Vision. I think it captures well what our heart's posture should be. Be thou my vision. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, forgive us for how easily we allow our hearts to latch on to the things passing from this world. Things that have the appearance of permanence, even things like brick and mortar, honors and accolades, the allure of political power, the the things that are not bad in and of themselves but cannot possibly bear the weight that only our our hearts so desperately need to find uh, rest in only you. Oh, Jesus, in this week ahead, would you help us to be good stewards of all that you have given us, to be content, and to be uh, committed to using the resources you have given us for your glory, and even to live with an eye toward your perfect justice that will one day come to this world. Now, Jesus, help us to sing with hearts that are full. Would you let us live out in this moment the fact that worship of you trumps everything else in this world It is more important than even the importance of government. Would you help us to sing with free hearts and with joy in our hearts and coming out of our mouths. We pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen.